0: Welcome to McCormick Speaks, brought to you by the McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at UMass Boston. Committed to student success in an equitable world and heard exclusively on WUMB. For season three, we continue in-depth public interest conversations, including inequality, urban research programs, education in the 21st century, US-Africa relations, public service and policy careers, and more. Welcome to season three of McCormick Speaks
1: at WUMB Radio, a partnership between WUMB Radio and the John McCormick School of Policy and Global Studies that hosts a series of conversations with distinguished guests on a range of topics on public and global affairs. I am Rita Kiki Adozi, Interim Dean of the John McCormick School and host of the radio broadcast. It is my pleasure to welcome today's distinguished guest speaker for Season 3. Adam Hines is a CEO of the Edward M. Kennedy Institute of the United States Senate. Welcome, Adam.
2: Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here.
1: <laughs> Adam Hines is an American politician. He currently serves as the CEO of the Edward uh, M. Kennedy Institute of the United States Senate. Uh, From 2017 to 2022, he represented the Berkshire, Hampshire, uh, Franklin and Hamden district of the Massachusetts Senate. Hines also previously worked for the United Nations in the Middle East. He attended Wesleyan uh, University and then studied international law and negotiation at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Uh, He's also a Truman National Security Fellow. After college, Hines was field director for the late U.S. Congressman John Oliver's 1998 re-election campaign in the first congressional district of Massachusetts. After graduating school, Senator Hines joined John Kerry's presidential campaign and was part of the national security and foreign policy team, working directly for Susan Rice. Uh, Hines also joined the United Nations in 2005 as a political officer based in Baghdad, working for the United Nations Assistant Mission for Iraq, and in 2009 was a team leader in UN-led negotiations between the Kurdistan region um, and the government of Iraq. Hines uh, returned uh, to Western Massachusetts after serving at the United Nations in 2014 and started a program in uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, to work with high-risk youth, those who were involved in violence and gang participation. He then became the executive director of the Northern Berkshire Community Coalition, an organization that works on Community development, including addressing youth development, addiction, and rural health access. Then Hines was elected as the Massachusetts State uh, Senator in November 2016 and was re elected in 2018. Hines was the chair of the Joint Committee on Revenue and served on the Senate Committee on Ways and Means, among many other important committees. In 2022, Hines ran for Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, but fell short of the 15% threshold needed to make a primary ballot, uh, securing 12.4% of the vote. Hines resigned from the Senate on September 25th, 2022, to become the Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of the Edward M. Kennedy Institute uh, for the United States Senate. Welcome again. Sorry to (laughs) make you go through all that. (laughs) No, I I wanted to go through it because um, it's so accomplished. And, uh, you know, once again, uh, thank you so much for doing this, Mr. Hines. Well, thanks for having me. Well, let me start with a shorter question then, since I had a long (laughs) intro. But I am, you know, looking at your public service uh, dedication. Your career is one that has crossed a variety of sectors and placed you in a, a vast array of different environments in pursuit of public service. Whether your role has been a politician, a community organizer, an executive leader of a foundation, or a UN uh, negotiator, public service seems to be a common theme uh, in your career. And that sort of uniquely spans the educational sectors of our own public and global affairs programs here Mm. at the John McCormick School of Policy and Global Studies. Our students would love to hear about what motivates you in choosing a career trajectory that commits you to serving the public interest with such dedication and
2: scope? First of all, I, I've realized I wish I had looked more closely at the McCormick School when I was considering graduate school, because <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right that the the list of, um, of, of programs directly aligns with what I've chosen my career path and my life focus to be, if you will. You, you and, chose and Tufts. So that's right. <laughs> yeah, we won't talk about the kind of the city rivalries here, but... It's an interesting question of, of how do you decide to, to have an impact? And, and, um, and for me, I guess like a lot of us, you have early influences. For me, that was my uncle. Um, and, and he interestingly, similarly spanned this, this notion of, is government a role for change and impact or are nonprofits and, and for outside kind of advocacy the way to go forward? He, his his timeframe was the late 60s and early 70s in Hartford, Connecticut, And so it was a time frame just after a lot of civil rights legislation had been passed at the national level, but it really took efforts at the city-state level to implement and make sure it was happening. Um, So he started an an organization called Education Instruction, which essentially tried to ensure that civil rights legislation related to redlining um, was enforced. And um, and so he decided at, at a certain point in the early 70s I'm going to become a state representative in Connecticut, and that'll be the way that you can have even more of an impact. Um, and so I think that model of, of, of straddling community work, uh, government work, clearly stuck in my head. And, um, and it's something that I've followed since. Um, but interestingly, the this having one foot in domestic politics and international affairs has also mm. been a consistent theme in my career. And I guess it's driven by how do you have the biggest impact possible? Is it at the state level, the national level? Is it international? And, um, and so true to form, uh, even the the campaigns that you reference with my congressman in the late, eight, late 90s and, and 2000, um, I would leave his congressional campaign and then go overseas mostly to India to do kind of development work and come back and do a campaign, and then go back to South Asia. And, and so um, literally straddling that line between domestic and international um, you know, work, and, and that has continued to this day, leaving the United Nations and coming back and deciding um, to to stand up for my own community in the state Senate and legislature and, and the like. And so um, there, there's a thread there and all of that, but it's, uh, it, it, like the McCormick School, I've decided to have it all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you have a favorite? Um, I mean, do you have a preference? Oh, interesting. Public, private, uh, non-profit, state, yeah. work? Politician.
2: Uh, Huh. It depends on the time of year and and the like. There are times um, like now when the the state Senate is is confronting the the state budget that it feels particularly meaningful. You can do a lot um, with um, a single week's worth of debate and negotiation. Um, And so there are certainly times I look in um, with envy at my former colleagues.
1: (laughs) Well, let me uh, talk a little bit about your current um, and new role As um, CEO of the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the United States Senate, EMKII, for those um, in the audience who do not know, is a nonprofit civic and educational institution dedicated to educating the public about the Senate's role in government, encouraging participatory uh, democracy, and invigorating civil discourse. In a Berkshire uh, Times article, you stated, but what really caught my eye about this position at the EMKI is that the board, after January 6th, determined they wanted to play a larger role in national dialogue and to really bring Republicans and Democrats together to avoid the further political violence that we're starting uh, to see more regularly in the United States. So, c- can you elaborate on why the national dialogue is uh, such an important? critical issue for you
2: yeah that's a that's a very accurate summary of what was motivating me to take this this position in the sense that given the bio we just described it's international negotiation and and political domestic political uh, work and this really felt like the board wanted to do both um, try to use the institutes um, as a platform for spurring conversations around how we can improve relations in our own country. And so it it is true that the the January 6th was an important uh, pivot point for the board. And and we have a a bipartisan board that includes um, several former U.S. senators, Tom Daschle, Chris Dodd, John Sununu on the Republican side, Andy Card, who is President W. Bush's um, chief of staff. And they all said, even before january sixth we don 't recognize the institute or institution of the United States Senate, and um, you know whether it 's the functionality and uh, productivity or the relationships between the senators and all the implications that that has for democracy and and implementing the will of the the citizens of the united states and so they 've said look we 're an institute for the United States Senate. If anyone can do this work, we can and should be doing that and so that spurred a, a range of um, new programs. We're convening uh, 10 former U.S. senators at the, the Cape House on um, the Kennedy compound that we own to discuss just this, uh, this summer. You know, how is it that we can put forward suggestions about how hyperpartisanship partisanship can, uh, you know, how it's negatively impacting functionality of the Senate and what can we do about it. And that's just one example. Um, but what we're reacting to is that polarization is dangerous um, mm-hmm. to the extent that you know, it's, it provides a rationale for just about anything you want to do in your community or in legislatures, uh, and, and in government. And so that's, that's the scary notion. And, and, um, I'll be citing some, some statistics today and, in my remarks, including one that is that 85 to 90 percent of Democrats and Republicans say that they're willing to vote against the other party, even if their own party is caught, uh, you know, engaging in undemocratic actions. And it's because they view that the other party is such a threat to the country. And so, you know, you can see I just opened the door to some possibilities moving away from, you know, kind of accepted democratic norms because the other party is the problem. And so that's that's what we're getting at, is that there's a real um there's a real risk in, in front of us all right now and um and so I'm I'm glad that the board recognized that and um and that's becoming a, a focus along with our, our traditional work in civic education and, and strengthening the tools of democracy in other ways.
1: Well thank you. I mean related to that is is your notion um that stuck out I'm a political scientist, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've never really um, you know, seen this concept of problem solving. Politics. Um, So, if you could put your politician hat back on for a minute. (laughs) At the McCormick School, our mission sees our role as a university or school collaborating with the public sector um, and the community organizations to help solve. Of the world's problems. And you once, you know, said, what will it take, you asked this question, what will it take to get over our political divide and approach the challenges we face as a country together? So elsewhere, you've referred to this as a brand of problem-solving politics. What is problem-solving politics?
2: You've done your research. <laughs> it's an effort to, to, I guess, bring together that, that background in, in negotiation with the political realm. And I'll note that I was elected the same day as Donald Trump. And so that sets the context for the political environment that I was operating in, namely um, highly divisive. And, yeah. and I'll never forget it, uh, especially in that year, 2017, um, people saying, I don't want you to talk to the other side. I want you to fight and um and that really sets the stage and and so to see that locally um and to feel that it it, i think that was part of the inspiration behind this notion of okay well hold on a second um how do we how do we actually encourage people to engage and actually encourage um, an effort to lift up the hood and say there are underlying interests that we're needing that we can see eye to eye on or fears that we can acknowledge and 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 down the line and so that was the the starting point and um I recognize it's it's much more complicated than that. Uh, right now, I would say in the U.S. Senate, the incentives to uh, the cooperation and problem solving have been shifted to such a degree that you're actually incentivized to block progress. And so um, there are, there are bigger dynamics at play right now um and 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 I'll mention it today you you're being rewarded for being the one who blocks progress you're being rewarded for very tangibly at the ballot box if the other the party that's in the majority doesn't get anything done th- the theory goes then they'll be elected voted out of office and and uh the minority party can take over and so there are high stakes um and and really large dynamics at play here but problem solving politics was my effort to say um, you know we can create a, create a different approach towards actually bringing people together to, uh, around the issues that matter.
1: So let me move to a question about higher education pathways to immigration. This was the topic of a conference that your organization recently held. Uh, One of the conversations that you hosted under this new leadership has been higher education pathways to immigration, why it matters. And it featured critical conversations illuminating higher education's role in facilitating immigration pathways, developing talent and potential, and reducing barriers to integration and naturalization. And it also featured um, our chancellor here Mm. at UMass Boston, Chancellor Marcelo Saez Orozco. Um, So the conversation discussed DACA, Legislation and policies needing, you said, a modernization, personal stories of immigration and access to higher education, and how the United States can develop uh, the talent and potential for immigrant students. My question, though, is uh, what policy initiatives emerged from the panel to facilitate greater access mm. and student success? for immigrant students, especially at UMass, the UMass system.
2: That's great. And I'm I'm glad you bring it up. And the, the chancellor is such a, a champion. He's um, obviously, I mean, I, I think your listeners probably know he's, uh, you know, one of the top global experts on, on immigration and migration and true to form, he uh, not only brought this Gathering uh, to UMass, but also you know has followed up with making sure that the results are in op eds and and the like. And so um, I am such a big fan of, <laughs> of Chancellor Suarez Orozco, and um, and I'm really appreciative that we're 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 kind of locking arms on several areas of work. You know, for me, I'll, I'll maybe start with the personal. I, I think my family is, is a part of the migration story. My kids are, I guess, I should say, is my wife is Mexican American, and her grandparents came to the U.S. Um, so that, uh, you know, she could have every opportunity available to her. her. Her grandfather drove drove trucks every day of his life, essentially, for that purpose. And you'll appreciate she became a college professor. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and you know, he would be incredibly proud of, of what she really? achieved. And, and it's... It's making sure that that is preserved for every generation, that opportunity, and um, I- including, you know, his actions for my own son and daughter. If you see the bags under my eyes, it's because of my five-month-old daughter and <laughs> two-year-old daughter, which the, hopefully they'll leave when they pass a certain age. But the, the gathering was a real opportunity for folks to to really. Take note of all the, the all the benefits from immigration and and the focus in this instance was on higher education as a pathway for immigration, and just recognizing that there are other countries doing it really well, and the United States is not on that list of countries doing it very well, and so as a result, we see people. We contribute to educating folks who then go somewhere else for their career and contributing to their economy because it's so hard and the system is so dysfunctional. And so that's a that's an interesting um, piece that you can start to see how businesses and f- folks relying on workforce of, and and the like can be allies with higher education um, and and policy advocates. There was, there was an op- op-ed recently in the New York Times by uh, Carla Canejo Villavicento, uh, who basically says, look, this is going to take the hard work, right? The, the, it's not always going to be the most high profile policy achievement. It might be the nuts and bolts of how the immigration process works, but it's going to have to be done in a bipartisan way, is what you said in the op-ed. And, and so where we have focus is, you know, can we replicate the gathering here in other parts of the country with, let's say, a bipartisan institutes of former senators in different parts of the country, actively bringing together policymakers with higher education leaders, with government officials that that's that's kind of where we're we're headed now is to try to uh, really contribute to bringing visibility to the need for this conversation to take place and and um, and if we can be a convener, then all the better.
1: Senator Kennedy brought people together through immigration reform in such significant and impactful ways that have such legacy. And so as Title uh, 42 expired last week or two weeks ago, and the U.S. border surges or not, it hasn't really uh, surged, but it's predicted to surge with um, political asylum migrants again. How are you thinking about problem-solving policy approaches to addressing immigration uh, in the U.S.? And this could be a you know sort of politician question and not necessarily a right. um m k i question
2: I'm glad you referenced senator kennedy's work we you know so he was involved in um essentially managing the the bill that became the nineteen sixty five nationality and immigration law that they how they or nationality act of nineteen sixty five And that was a very deliberate attempt to get rid of discriminatory quotas by country. Um, And so the number of people who come to me now and say, hey, I'm here because of that law. Um, My family came over as a result of changes that came through that. It gives me shivers even saying that, but also just um, it gives us a sense that at the Institute we can clearly lift up the policies that the Senator viewed as priorities and and continue to make progress to this day. And so that's, that's why you'll see us engage in more work in this area um, as well and um, and so we 're working with the Chancellor to identify what that might be, but in general, I, I guess I would just grab on your your comment that the the surge has not taken place, and so um, it might be another example of the various influences at play in trying to stir up uh, reactions um, even when they don 't always exist and and so I might leave it there, but um, you know that's it's it's an issue that you know there are a lot of uh, folks out there who say it's it's changing demographics that are creating the political opportunity for folks to make an argument for outgroup bias and the like. Mm. And, and so I think um, I, I feel like we're at the beginning of of how we navigate this as a nation, uh, but it does start with fixing the system that's yeah. that's clearly broken. Yeah.
1: Let's stop here and pick up with part two on McCormick Speaks at WUMB Radio next week. Thank you, Adam.
2: Thank you.
0: On the next McCormick Speaks, part two of Kiki's discussion with former Senator Adam Hines, who currently serves as the CEO of the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the United States Senate.
2: When I referred to social mobility and income inequality as a, as a matter of national security is... The, the fact that we, we understand all the implications, the negative implications from generational poverty especially, but social disparity uh, in general. And so you, you mentioned in my bio of kind of understanding, starting an organization that was working in communities with kids getting involved in violence and it directly overlaid with the neighborhoods that had the lowest per capita income and, and median household income. And surprise, surprise, you know, folks who didn't have food and didn't have necessarily access to transportation networks and, and on and on and on were experiencing lower health outcomes, lower lifetime earnings and the like. And, um, and so it's a pretty straight line to me from seeing the, the lack of investment and the gaps that we can and see in, in kind of uh, less prosperous economic areas that it has a dramatic income overall. And so I can kind of follow that line and say, from an economic perspective, it's a national priority, right? You know, we the records show that there's less growth when you have more inequality. There's, you know, less stable economies when you have dramatic inequality of that nature. And so that that was part of what i was referring to i think it's a nod to the fact that inequality in the in the united states is in fact higher than almost any other developed country and is rising mm-hmm. and so at a certain point, you, you make the determination that it doesn't have to be that way here and, and what are the investments that can move the needle and change uh, how that is, is kind of taking place today, including how we address legacies of discrimination in our economy and in our, comu- in our communities. That was what I was trying to speak to in, in those moments as a, as a state senator and um, really making the argument for stronger investments in everything from education and housing and, and the like. Um, and and health equity throughout our commonwealth.
0: This has been McCormick Speaks, brought to you by the McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at UMass Boston and WUMB.